Robert Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. After a fortnight away from home, and almost as long as that away from the podcast, Dave Cameron returns to his usual Monday slot with a view towards providing all of us with razor-sharp analysis. In this particular episode of the podcast, said analysis concerns, first of all, the newest signing by the Cincinnati Reds, left-hander Sean Marshall to an extension that will keep him with the team for three years after this next one. We discuss to what degree Marshall may or may not be worth his contract over those three years, and how it compares to other contracts that relievers have received this offseason. We discuss the Ryan Zimmerman extension and what said extension does for the Nationals in both the near and long term. Turning our attention to prospects, I pose to Cameron the same question that Baseball America posed to a number of major league scouts and scouting directors, namely between this year's three top prospects, that's Bryce Harper, Mike Trout, and Matt Moore, how would you rank them one through three? Cameron responds to that question, and we use it as an entree into a brief discussion over the valuation of pitchers relative to hitters in both prospect lists and future value. Uh, Finally, we end with a brief and perhaps sobering conversation about Justin Morneau and his ongoing problems with concussion symptoms and the difficulties and mystery surrounding concussions and the issues a player must consider when dealing with them. It's Dave Cameron. It's 100% analysis 100% of the time, and it begins right now. I was thinking Ryan Zimmerman um, contract extension. That seems reasonable, yeah. right? Right. Yeah, okay. Uh, Justin Morneau, um, his, uh, I guess his future, what we what we know about it, and then um, uh, and then maybe some uh, wild speculation regarding it. Okay. Um, I also had Joel Zamaya on the list uh, because it looks yeah. like he's out for the season. I don't know. What we could say about it, but we could say that the Twins are doomed, essentially, is one thing we could conclude. Absolutely. No Joel Zemaya means last place. Oh, all right. That's not true. But Zemaya is an interesting character in that he, uh, well, well uh, I have some mildly interesting things to say about that. Uh, was there anything okay. else that you think is pressing? Uh, Red just gave Sean Marshall a three-year contract extension. Three-year contract extension. Well, let's start uh, that. You say it just happened. What are, what are, uh, what are the uh, details on that? We have no terms at this point. We just know it's three years. Okay. Well, this we could have an exercise. We'll do uh, – um, what do you think – well, wait a second. Sean Marshall uh, – we, yeah. we could say, first of all, Sean Marshall was traded this offseason from the Cubs to the Reds in a deal that saw uh, – who go the other way precisely? Travis, Travis Wood. Right. Yeah, Travis Wood, um, sort of a control type pitcher. Yep, soft tossing lefty fly ball guy. Right, Sean Marshall um, has been was definitely excellent in in 2011. I remember when that trade happened. Um, it occurred to me that uh, he was much more excellent than I had even known, and he was also uh, very good in 2010. I think is that right? Yeah, he might be the best left-handed reliever in baseball at this point. Okay, wow. Um, and so that's that's a good thing. How many more years now? Uh, previous to to this uh, contract extension, how many more years of team control? 
he was going to be a free agent at the end of the year. So the Cubs traded him in his walk year because they weren't planning on re-signing him. So they flipped him off to the Reds, and then the Reds signed him for his, you know, this coming year, and then assuming, you know, two years on top of that. It could be three years beginning at the end of the season, but more likely it's probably this year plus two more. Okay. So what do you think uh, Sean Marshall is worth? What do you, well, what do you, yeah, what do you think he's worth? What do you think that he probably got? And are those two numbers so far apart that it's it's ridiculous for the Reds to have to have signed him to an extension? My my guess is the deal is going to be something like three eighteen. Um, and actually, now that I look at it, it is three years beginning at the end of this year, so it's through twenty fifteen. So they bought out three free agent years. I'm guessing the total package is going to be something like eighteen million dollars. Uh, you know, good quality relievers, uh, setup guys are getting. A little bit more than that, like Brian Fuentes a couple of years ago. I mean, he was still kind of a closer, but doesn't necessarily viewed as a closer. But he got 324. Um, I think Marshall, given that he signed his deal a little bit before he got to free agency, is probably going to take a bit of a discount, especially because the Reds aren't the, the spendiest team ever. Um, but my, my guess is that he's going to be somewhere in the 318 range. He should probably be worth that. I mean, I, I don't think that uh, the... The sabermetric idea of you can build a bullpen on the cheap applies to every pitcher. I mean, there aren't just Sean Marshall's laying around. He's really good. So, you know, whether he's going to be really good in 2015 is up for grabs, but he should be pretty good in 2012 and 2013. And uh, having him around as they're making a push for the playoffs and trying to convince Joey Votto to stay in Cincinnati is a good idea. Um, we've had some stuff on the site regarding... Um how to evaluate, or I should say, how to evaluate um, um, pitch all sorts of players um, on the on the WAR scale, wins above replacement scale. I, I remember. I don't know if Matt Swartz included any um, um, analysis of this in his most recent three-part series. I know Jack Moore looked at it for relievers um, specifically uh, within the last month or so. I think among all players, relief pitchers have generally the biggest gap between the amount they're paid per win above replacement uh, relative to the amount uh, to the dollar amount that they're paid uh, per per win uh, win probability added or win you know right. as far as that goes. Yep. Uh, I mean, if the market suggests now, you say Marshall is a better than, than average pitcher, but but what? Um, I mean, where do you fall on this? I guess, and and are there are teams still overspending, even though it makes sense in the context of the market? So, I mean, I think there's no question that teams are still overspending on relief pitchers. Like, I know that we can look at WPA and explain uh, how teams are um, coming to these prices for contracts, but that doesn't make it a good idea. So, we can figure out why they're going astray in their valuations, but that doesn't make their valuations correct. So, in general, relief pitchers are still fairly overpaid. It's getting better, as we've seen with the Ryan Madison contract. I mean, there were, there were fewer uh, just total head-scratching reliever deals outside of the Jonathan Pavelbon contract, and that's the Phillies. That's just what they do. Um, but I think, you know, the teams are getting smarter, but relievers are still certainly overpaid. Um, you know, I think we can look at uh, something like WPA and say, okay, if we gave the full credit of the leverage of the inning pitched to the reliever, then we could say that, you know, maybe this guy was a five-win reliever, because uh, he pitched in really high leverage situations, he did really well. But the fact of the matter is, the pitcher pitching that inning didn't create that leverage his teammates did. And if that pitcher happens to get injured, he's going to be replaced by someone else 
who gets that leverage. It's not something that goes with him. And so what we're really trying to do is measure the inherent value that a player brings to the field by himself and the full value of leverage in a in an eighth or ninth inning situation in a close game isn't something that was created by that specific reliever. And so, you know, that's kind of the concept of value above replacement. We want to understand how good the next guy who would replace you would be if the team lost you or traded you or you got hurt or whatever it would be. Uh, that that leverage in the ninth inning situation is still going to be there and would be filled by someone else who took your spot. So we can't just give it to the reliever and say, oh, yeah, this guy, including the leverage of the inning, was worth five and a half wins by win probability. If this team loses the guy, they're going to lose five and a half wins because it's not true. A large part of that value is due to the leverage, and that leverage sticks around even after the player leaves. Um, let, let's talk about Shaw Marshall um, specifically for a moment. Uh, is he going to be a setup man? And if and if so, who's who's the closer for that team this year? They signed Ryan Madsen to be the closer. Uh, so Marshall will be their seventh and eighth inning lefty dominating guy. Um, you know, he probably would have been in the mix for the closer role had Ryan Madsen not landed in their lap. But I think uh, he's looked at like most left-handers as a guy who they would rather be able to use as a matchup guy earlier in the game. And that's totally okay. Marshall's so good against both guy, both left-handers and right-handers that he can pitch multiple innings. He's thrown, you know, 85 innings in 2009, 75 innings each of the last two years. This isn't a lefty specialist. He's a guy who can, you know, come in and get four, five, six outs if need be in a high-leverage situation. And he's so good that, uh, you know, maybe not using the ninth inning is a, a more valuable role for him anyway. Right, and I actually remember that that came up uh, last year at some point. I, I think um, Daniel Bard was having a conversation. Uh, perhaps with one of the the uh, Boston Globe writers or Boston Herald writers, and he mentioned uh, he actually mentioned mentioned shutdowns and meltdowns, um, yeah. and it was actually it seemed of course Papelbon had an excellent season last year too, but it seemed advent, advantageous um, at some level that uh, that Daniel Bard was given um, he was given a number of high leverage innings even though they were not you know obviously safe situations and and so your suggestion is that Sean Marshall will be deployed in a similar role yeah right I think the Reds are going to use him in a lot of high leverage situations even though he's not the closer and I think we've seen that if you're a contending team that's going to try and win a lot of games you better have more than one good reliever like you can't just have an ace closer and then a bunch of middling middle guys trying to get the ball to him because otherwise you'll blow a lot of leads before the ninth inning ever shows up so you know having Marshall and Madsen isn't redundant at all there's going to be Plenty of high high leverage innings for them to go around. Okay, so so here's a question though. Now, Sean Marshall was a starting pitcher at one point. He was a prospect in yep. the Cubs system. Right. Okay. Uh, he, I think, I believe he he um, was a starter when he was called up, and he and he had yep. uh, trouble as a starter. Yep. Okay. Now um, he appears to have developed into an excellent pitcher, or at least an excellent relief pitcher. Do you think it would make sense? And I understand that that roles play are, are important to to a lot of um, major leaguers, and especially in a bullpen where you know your position isn't fixed necessarily. Having some sense of a role can be important. But is there reason to think that a Sean Marshall has developed as a pitcher, um, perhaps with more frequent appearances? And that be that were he converted back to starting, he might have um, some success in that role as well. Um, so it's possible, but I do think we need to understand that some pitchers just 
fare better in in bullpen situations where they can throw for 15 or 20 pitches. The the last year, Sean Marshall was a starting pitcher in 2008. He averaged 87 miles an hour on a fastball. Last year, he averaged 91 miles an hour on a fastball. That is a huge jump. I mean, a boost of four miles an hour. Um, we can't just write it off and say, okay, uh, maybe if he goes to back to the rotation, he'll only lose one or two miles an hour. I mean, it's possible, but we've seen that some guys – uh, Joe Nathan was a really good example of this. He was thrown in the, uh, you know, low 90s as a starter for the Giants, and then he went to the Twins in the trade, and all of a sudden he was throwing 98 of out of the bullpen. And so, um, some guys just adapt well to that short inning bullpen role, and they throw a lot harder, and their stuff gets a lot crisper. Um, and they're, they, essentially the choice for some of these guys is, be an okay back of the rotation starter or be a dominating late game reliever. And in most cases, the teams are better off with a dominating late game reliever than they are with a guy who's, you know, going to throw three miles an hour slower and give up a lot more home runs in the rotation. So, so what we might have, you know, there's a generic sort of um, translation. Um, you know, if, if a pitcher is a starter, we say, well, if, were he pitching in relief, he'd probably, you know, lose a run of ERA and then vice versa for going the other direction. But your suggestion is that is that while that's uh, a good shorthand, um, we probably you know it is generic and we shouldn't we shouldn't apply it uh, in, uh, in a blanket way to every pitcher. Absolutely, I think there are some pitchers who are just physically suited better to the shorter role, and you know even, even mentally, there are some pitchers who aren't going to study game film and do all the things necessary to uh, really prepare for six or seven innings, and so you just come in and tell them to throw really hard, and that's what they do well. Um, but I think there are pitchers who belong in the bullpen, and so I don't think we want to look at every successful reliever and say, well, you know, the uh, normal adjustment is one run the other way, and if ERA is 2.25, a 3.25 ERA start is really good, let's move him to the rotation, because uh, there are some pitchers who are just going to be at the other end of the curve where they get a, a bigger boost from moving to the bullpen uh, or moving out of the rotation uh, than the average. What do you think would happen? Now, I, I know that he started um, early in his career, but what do you think would happen if Mariano Rivera were a starting pitcher? Uh, I think he would be okay. Uh, I don't think Mariano Rivera would be bad by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think there's something to the idea of uh, Rivera uh, throwing a lot harder out of the bullpen. I mean, I remember when he was a starter, he was low 90s, and so... Um, not that he's, uh, you know, sitting in the, the upper 90s that often anymore anyway, uh, but I think if Rivera had been a starter during his career, he'd have been good, uh, maybe a number three, number four starter, but I don't think he would have been an ace. I think uh, the velocity boost he got, the ability to get that late life on the cutter, uh, really is the thing that has made him a dominating pitcher, and that cutter at, you know, 88 is a lot less effective than it is at 92. I, I mean, that's, I mean, we could probably, we could spend all day, there's no real reason to marvel at Rivera in this episode of the podcast as opposed to any other. Um, it's still ridiculous, though, um, what he does with that pitch, right? Because it's essentially the only pitch he throws, and yeah. the batter knows that it's coming, and yet still is unable to adjust to the late movement. Yeah, I think the thing with the cutter, Rivera's cutter specifically, is that it's unlike any other pitch in baseball. So, you know, with other pitchers, you can kind of say, okay, I've seen this curveball, I've gotten used to the movement, I can recognize it coming out of the hand, I kind of know what it does. Rivera's cutter is so unique. He's the only guy in baseball who throws a pitch that moves like that. It's essentially a really hard knuckleball, and uh, the movement is unpredictable to a point. I mean, you know, kind of know the general direction it goes, but you can't uh, pinpoint the exact way it's going to break 
and uh, identify coming out of his hand, okay, if it's there uh, at eye level, this is where it's going to be when it gets into the strike zone. And hitters just don't get enough reps against it. So, you know, the, a general hitter is only going to face Rivera a few times a year. Even over their career, they're only going to see that pitch 50 to 100 times. They're just not going to see it enough to really get comfortable with the movement and kind of get an understanding of where that pitch is going. And so since he's the only guy in baseball that throws that pitch, and it moves uh, more than you would think for a pitch that's thrown that hard, it's just not something that they can figure out how to hit. All right, all right. All right. Uh, we're done with that, Dave, just so you know. That, that conversation's okay. over now. Fine. Okay, you feel comfortable with that? Sure. I, I, I could talk about Mariano Rivera for the rest of my life and not get bored, but I understand that that wouldn't make a very good podcast. No, it wouldn't be. Although, if we did it for the rest of your life, well, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, eventually you would uh, break my computer, um, or that would break my computer. Uh, in the meantime, however, let's uh, um, let's go to Ryan Zimmerman and his contract. Ryan Zimmerman is a player that I know you um, have a great deal of esteem for, um, for his offensive production, but but uh, even more than that for what he adds defensively, I think. Um, uh, and I know that he's ranked pretty highly. Uh, at least I'm I'm um, I'm fairly sure he's ranked pretty highly um, in the trade value series that you produce each year. Uh, what are the terms now of Zimmerman's contract? Uh, please remind us. And if I'm not mistaken, this is uh, a la Ryan Howard. This is added on to the end of, of a different extension. Right. So he had two years left on a five-year deal he signed uh, early in his career with the Nationals. Uh, they didn't tear those two years up. So he's still going to get the $12 million this year and $14 million next year that he was already going to get. They didn't change those terms at all. They just added a six-year, $100 million extension onto the end of it. So that doesn't begin until 2014. Uh, and we'll take him through 2019, and then there's a team option for 2020, which apparently is worth $18 million, not the $24 million reported yesterday. So in total, uh, it looks like it's you know, he'll get about $126 million over the next eight years. $26 million of that was already guaranteed. Um, and then there's a team option that could push it up into like the 145 million range uh, through 2020. So he got uh, about the same length, a little bit short, one year shorter guaranteed than Troy Tulowitzki and Ryan Braun, um, but it was a much lower annual average value. He took a, a much smaller extension than those guys did, in part because he's more in love than that, um, and he's not regarded at the same level as those two, and so I think that's why the Nationals were willing to do that deal to help. And um, I guess, I mean, I don't necessarily know, what the thing to ask is other than, you know, is it is it fair market value? Do you think both sides come away happy from that deal? Yeah, I think both sides are happy. I think the Nationals wanted to keep Ryan Zimmerman. Um, and, you know, he's a local kid. He went to Virginia. He's from the area. Uh, they're obviously trying to build a good young nucleus around him and Strasburg and Bryce Harper and some of their other kids, Danny Espinosa. They've got a core that they're trying to really kind of make of their version of the, you know, what the Phillies did without Liam Howard and those guys. And so they, they've feel like Zimmerman's a key piece that they wanted to lock up long-term. He's uh, only going to be 27 this year, so it's not like they're committing, you know, to age 40 for a guy. I mean, you know, they're only locking him up through his age 34 season. Um, so I think it, you know, from the Nationals' perspective, they didn't get a steal. This isn't one of those contracts where, you know, they saved a ton of money over what they would have gotten if they would have just wrote it out through the next couple of years and then tried to find him as a free agent. But they took away the uncertainty of, 
um, you know, maybe over the next two years, he would have decided that he didn't want to stay in Washington anymore. He got offended by the fact that they didn't try and sign him before he became a free agent and he went somewhere else and they needed to go get a new third baseman. So they get rid of that uncertainty. They sign a really good player at a contract that's not absurd. It's not the Prince Fielder deal. It's not the Ryan Howard deal. Um, you know, they get $16 million a year for a, an all-star caliber third baseman is uh, a valuable addition to the franchise. Um, you know, I think Zimmerman's got to be happy. He's coming off a pretty bad year. He had some health problems, and he's still got $100 million guaranteed. So, um, And that's two years away from free agency. So Zimmerman has to be thrilled with this deal. The Nationals have to be happy that they have a good player. This isn't uh, a deal that's going to really boost his trade value where you're getting a superstar player to bargain rate, but you're getting a good player at a good rate, and, uh, you know, that's what you need. You need talent on the field, and the Nationals have ensured that they're going to have a good third baseman for the next 10 years or so. The Nationals have done a lot of work this offseason. Uh, um, if memory serves, they don't really have a lot going on as so far as center fielders goes at the moment, or go at the moment. Um, and, you know, maybe, uh, the you know, to, to what degree Ian Desmond should play. Uh, and, and Adam LaRoche, you know, those are those are still question marks. I know you're not in love with Gio Gonzalez either. However, they have made some moves this offseason. Um, uh, of course, they, they signed Jason Worth uh, uh, last offseason, and he's likely to imp- uh, improve upon his performance from then. We've we talked sort of about what contending might mean. I'm curious as to how, you know, if your position on the Nationals has changed and where you see them ending up at the end of the season. Uh, I still see them as a low 80s win team at the moment. Uh, that could change. There's some upside there. Certainly if Strasburg uh, does what he does a couple of years ago before the injury and he's the best pitcher on the planet, that pushes them up higher. Um, you know, there's upside in that rotation. Jordan Zimmerman is a pretty good arm. He might not be as good as people think if they look at the VRA, but he's a pretty good arm. Gio Gonzalez. Same thing, you know, he's not a bad pitcher. Edwin Jackson has ability. So, you know, there's uh, definitely talent on the pitching side of things. The offense is a little bit more questionable, but, uh, you know, there's still some ability there, especially if Zimmerman and Worth have bounced back years. So, um, you know, I look at the Nationals and I see an 81 to 84 win team or so uh, with a little bit upside for more. And, um, you know, if the, enough things go right and guys stay healthy, they could get into the, the upper 80s and maybe even crack 90. And if uh, Bud Sealy is successful in pushing forward a second wild card for this year, that could be enough to get them into that uh, second wild card position and fighting for a playoff spot. So I don't think that this is a, a team that's going to be, you know, the best in the National League, but they're certainly going to be an interesting team to watch. They're going to have a lot of talent on the field, and um, especially if there's that second wild card, they could be contenders this year. I mean, that's probably the, at least the most optimism. Regarding them, in the organization is probably healthier than it's been uh, for as long as it's been in Washington, right? Yeah, right. I mean, this is uh, the Nationals are a franchise clearly on the rise. I think it's impossible to look at them and not see a pretty bright future there. Um, there's some risk there in that their you know premier player right now is uh, a guy who's already had Tommy John surgery and a guy who throws so hard that we've never seen a pitcher stay healthy throwing this hard for so long. So you know, with Strasburg, there's certainly some long-term risk, and you hope that he can stay healthy. You hope that he's not the next Mark Fryer, because um, it's good for baseball if Steven Strasburg is a phenom and turns into uh, one of the best pitchers in baseball. Um, but, you know, there's certainly some risk there. I don't think that this is uh, – I don't think the Nationals are where the Rays were back in 2008, where the talent was just so ridiculous at every level of the organization that it was obvious they were going to be very good in a hurry, and they couldn't help but succeed because they had so many options. So even if one or two guys failed – they just, that's okay. They had another top prospect coming right behind him. The Nationals have, you know, five or six key pieces in place that are, that could be the core of a really good team. 
Um, but, you know, if injuries strike, all of a sudden it could be you know, kind of like what the Mets had with Bill Pulsifer and Jason Isringhausen and Paul Wilson, where it should have been really good and it wasn't. Now, you, you mentioned uh, uh, the, the Rays from a couple of years ago. Um, the uh, Baseball America, um, they just released uh, last week, I received their uh, top uh, top 100 prospects issue. And, of course, it's available on the Internet. Uh, they did. They did uh, sort of an interesting thing. Is essentially, you know, they have um, as as basically every other prospect list has. They have um, um, Bryce Harper, Mike Trout, and Matt Moore uh, as the top three on their list. And yep. uh, a sort of in, uh, interesting feature they had was to ask um, um, officials from different baseball teams, scouts from ba- different baseball teams. To weigh in on on those three and the order in which they would place them, and I'm curious those three prospects. I'm curious as to how how you would order them and why. Yeah, I think for me, uh, I love what Matt Moore did at the end of last season. He's clearly the best pitching prospect in baseball, and uh, you know, given how polished he looked, it looks like he could be one of the best pitchers in baseball starting in 2012. But he's still a pitcher, and so when I look at Mike Trout and Bryce Harper, I see high feeling. Uh, close to the majors guys who could easily be the best player in, on their team and maybe the best player in baseball at some point in their peak, uh, and they're not pitchers, so they have a much lower uh, chance of breaking down. And so for me, I, I love Matt Moore, but he's the number three guy because uh, to me, if you've got a choice between really great pitcher or really great hitter, uh, the pitcher has to be so far and ahead and upside in order to justify the risk that you're going with the arm, and I don't see that to be the case in Moore's case versus Harper or Trout. I don't think the extra upside is there to justify the extra risk. So I love Matt Moore, but I, I can't justify putting him ahead of either Bryce Harper or Mike Trout. Um, and I think, you know, Harper versus Trout is an interesting thing. It's essentially, uh, you know, upside plus risk versus proximity to the majors. I don't think anyone thinks that Trout has more ability than Harper, um, but he's just closer to the majors. So if you're a present value guy and you want a guy who could potentially be a three-win player in 2012, then you want Mike Trout. <laughs> if you're looking a little more long-term and you uh, want a guy who could be the best player in baseball at 23 or 24, then you probably want Bryce Harper. Uh, in this case, I don't think you can go wrong either way. I would lean slightly towards Harper, but I love Mike Trout. So. In a couple situations, um, there, there were some scouts who were throwing around 40 to 45 home run projections for Harper, you know, like – Basically, starting tomorrow, or, or you know, maybe I'm misreading that, and that's you know at his peak. But is the power really that prodigious? Yeah, the power is an 80. I mean, like uh, on the 2080 scale, Bryce Harper is at the very top of the food chain. He's, he might not have quite as much power as Mike Stanton, who hits the ball harder than anyone I've ever seen, but it's close. Bryce Harper has that kind of uh, long ball ability where, in his prime, he should have no problem launching 40 home runs. That's a lot of home runs. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, that's interesting. Now, now with with regard to Moore, would you drop him any further in the three? Could you see putting like uh, Jerickson Profar or Manny Machado or, or someone of that that sort ahead of him? No. At that point, I think Moore is clearly uh, uh, good enough to justify the risk. Where you know a guy like Profar or Machado, they have their own risk as well. There are several years from the majors. Uh, you don't know how they're going to adjust to higher level pitching. Um, you don't necessarily know whether Machado's going to stay at shortstop. Um, you know, there's risk inherent with guys 
that young as position players, too, who have a, a development to go before they're real major league players. Matt Moore is a real major league player right now. So uh, for me, Moore is the easy spot, number three. Um, I think, you know, in uh, some other years, maybe you could make a case for him as number one. But with the existence of Harper and Trout, I think that those guys have to be one, two for me. If you if you were a, a scouting director, do you think that you would um, you you would be drafting batters more um, than other scouting directors? I mean, just because of the risk involved? Uh, probably. I mean, I still think that the draft is probably a little bit too pitcher heavy. Um, and I think maybe prospect valuation is a little bit too picture heavy. I mean, if you look at the top 100 list, there's a lot of arms at the very top of the list. I mean, I know every scouting director in the world loves what Dilly, Dylan Bundy did, but he's still a high school pitcher. He's 18 years old and never faced a major, a professional hitter. Um, and he's ranked in the top 10 prospects on most of these lists or at the, you know, 11 or 12 on the, on the conservative lists. And, um, to me, that's just, uh, it's a little too aggressive considering what we know about high school pitchers and guys who, uh, you know, need a couple years in the minor leagues, need to get through that injury nexus phase. Um, you know, I think that there's maybe just a little too much optimism with what pitchers could be, and it could be related to something, uh, you know, I wrote on the site a couple weeks ago, of maybe it's just easier to scout pitchers, so we have more confidence in the fact that, like, if this guy doesn't get hurt, he could be really good, because I'm already seeing him throw 95 with good command and a good out pitch, and so there's no projection there. I don't necessarily need to dream on, you know, what he could do if he learns how to hit a curveball, He's just a good major league pitcher as long as he doesn't get hurt. The problem is that so many of them get hurt that I I think that there's maybe still a little bit of an underappreciation of uh, the risk and uh, that goes along with you know any 18 year old arm. You know that's curious what you say because um, I I really enjoyed that piece that you wrote uh, that that looked at the uh, you, you know what the reason or you know tr- examining the reason why why pitchers maybe do appear um, higher up than we might expect on on prospect lists and it's because they're easier to scout because you see a hitter um it, it seems like with a hitter like to get a sense of you know his capacity for barreling a ball um you know a lot of this stuff is borne out by data and, it, and it's maybe harder to see in the in the minutia of you know swing mechanics or or that sort of thing right uh we also discussed i think it was just uh, last week on the pod the degree to which uh, speed gets gets uh, uh, scouts excited and, and prospect analysts excited, and and I wonder if it, it's maybe the same phenomenon because speed is a thing you can see either you have speed yep. or you don't. Um, right. Whereas like you know ability to lay off uh, borderline sliders is uh, you know to what degree you know can you can you make conclusions on that just from seeing a guy even if you go scout a guy ten times you you don't necessarily know that. Yeah, I think we see this at the major league level too. I mean, you know, there's no question that offense is valued more highly than defense, um, because offense is something that is much easier to measure than defense, especially historically. I mean, you know, defensive metrics are making advances and we're getting a little bit more confident in our ability to say who's a good fielder and who's a bad fielder, but there's no question that we can measure that Albert Pools can hit the baseball and no one can argue that. There's, there's no room for, uh, any kind of debate in that. Conclusion where, you know, if you say Brett Gardner is a really good defensive outfielder, most people will think that's true, but they're not sure to what extent that he's really good or if he's better than some guy who plays center field instead of left field. And so, you know, even the very best guys at the defensive level, there's still, uh, skepticism because it's a harder thing to see. It's not something that you can just evaluate by going one day and watching a guy, you know, crush the ball or hit the ball 450 feet. It's something that needs to be seen over time. And I think, you know, any, any, skill that needs to be scouted over a period of time, such as hitting mechanics and how a hitter adjusts to certain pitches out of the zone or um, the approach he takes or 
um, kind of the things that are important to hitting that aren't obvious from their physical skills uh, gets devalued a little bit. And so the things that are obvious, such as speed or velocity, get played up more because you can go see those guys once and uh, come away with a pretty good idea of uh, what that skill is. Right. All right. Uh, b- before before you go, uh, Dave, I did want to just mention uh, uh, the Justin Morneau uh, situation briefly. Uh, I, I'm, I'm forgetting now who, who wrote the piece on it this week. Maybe it was Jack Moore. Uh, regarding some statements by Justin Morneau uh, to the effect that uh, essentially dealing with the, his concussion symptoms has been, I think he used the word torturous, or he said something to the effect of you don't want to torture yourself. Um, it's a peculiar thing. I mean, this is from an injury, I think, from about two years ago where initially where maybe he was trying to break up a double play or at least he was sliding in a second. Um uh, re-aggravated or you know, reconcussed, I guess, uh, last year, just kind of simply diving for a ball, um, and and uh, we've seen the you know the the sort of effects it can have on him because certainly when he came back he wasn't uh, last year he wasn't Justin Morneau as as we'd known him. Uh, you know, do you see this? Is, do, you, do you see any reason for optimism at this point? And kind of what do you think is is uh, the the most likely outcome from Morneau? Yeah, I mean, is one of those things that are still uh, just kind of a big gray area. It's different for every player. I mean, you know, Jack referenced Corey Kosky and his story. Is the, uh, it basically ended his career. I mean, he had so many concussions that he just couldn't perform at the level that he'd been able to perform at, and he had to walk away. And, um, you know, we hope that's not the case for Morneau, but we just don't really know. I mean, you know, concussions are one of those things that, um, you know, the guy just saying it has to tell the doctor, hey, this is how I feel. These are the symptoms I'm feeling. It's not like you can go in there and do an MRI and say, oh, yeah, your arm is broken in three places. If we do the surgery, we'll just put your arm back together and you'll be good to go. I mean, with concussions, we just kind of have to play it day by day and hope the guy doesn't have headaches. And um, it's not something that we can put a good timeline on. So right now, Morneau says he's symptom-free, but he's obviously still got some reservations. And, um, you know, I think what he was expressing was frustration with the fact that he's put so much work into it and he, there's no obvious conclusion. Like, if you're rehabbing from, you know, even a torn ACL, there's a timeline. You know, it's going to be 12 months and you're going to be able to do this, you're going to do this, and you're going to see progress, and at some point you're going to be walking, and at some point you're going to be jogging, and then eventually you'll be running and you're moving towards the goal. Uh, with concussions, it's just sitting around hoping it doesn't come back and uh, or doesn't happen again. And there's this lingering fear that just hangs over your head the whole time. And, um, you know, it's not fun to have that kind of what-if thing in the back of your mind at all times. And, you know, at least if you have Tommy John surgery or something, uh, they can be pretty confident unless you tear the ligament again. You can just go out there and throw a baseball without fear. But with a concussion, you're always going to be worried about that inside pitch or, you know, a collision at first base or, you know, diving into the bag and getting a knee in the head. There's just so many situations where, you know, you're going to be a little bit tentative, and I think it's natural to um, maybe adjust the the way you did before. I don't think we're going to know what Justin Morneau can be um, until he gets on the field and sees how he can play, uh, adapting to the fact that he knows that he could get concussed again at any time. Right. You know, in, uh, like you mentioned Tommy John surgery. Obviously, that's a surgery. You know, where um, if you come back from it and you know, you know, you don't re-injure the ligament, you're fine. Um, you know, maybe maybe a, a closer analog would be uh, like labrum surgery, um, which is you know which maybe has had some success and maybe hasn't. But the, the distinction, anyways, with the concussion is that this is something like your brain is your is the home of your entire identity, 
and yeah. and your perception of the world. I mean, you know, you start talking about issues that the far exceed your ability to play baseball. You know, I mean, it's like your ability to spell your name. You know, it's like that's that's encased in your brain. And if you if you damage it playing baseball, you just you could you could start just being a different person. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it, you know, there's definitely a. Uh that's a good point. Is like Morneau is facing an issue that goes beyond baseball and goes to the quality of the rest of his life after baseball. He's only 30 years old, 31, uh, I think 31 years old. He's got 50 years of life, you know, maybe more, 60 years of life ahead of him. He has to ask himself, hey, you know, if I'm only going to play baseball for probably another four or five years, in the best case scenario, uh, do I want to risk the next 45 after that and the quality of the 45 years of life I can have uh, on the chance that I get another, you know, fastball in the head and it does some serious damage to me, or do I just want to say I made a whole lot of money and I had a, you know, pretty decent career and I'm going to walk away at 31, 32 in some degree of health and know that I can, you know, travel the world and do whatever I want for the rest of my life. Right. And, you, uh, and he's already um, living in the United States as a Canadian, so he's um, he's one step closer to traveling the world. True, true. And I think, uh, you know, every person who dreams of traveling the world starts in Minnesota. No, but, you know, uh, from what I've seen of it, Minnesota is a lovely place and uh, a lot of good, good-natured people there, Dave Cameron. True, but I still think it's maybe not at the top of, like, most people's to-do bucket list travel places. Uh, yeah. Although, speaking of that, uh, Sabre, um, the Sabre convention this year takes place in... Um, Minnesota. I, I assume you're going to be there. I don't know, though. Yeah, we're planning on making the trip up to Minneapolis this summer for the Sabre Convention. Uh, we'll also be in Phoenix at the Sabre Analytics Conference from the 15th to the 17th, so there's a sh- shameless plug there. So we'll be at uh, both Sabre events this year. Uh, I have a feeling that you'll uh, be seeing a lot of old, scraggly white guys who haven't showered in a long time at both. <laughs> now, some of them are well-kempt. Uh, uh, yes, a few of them are well kept, but uh, I believe it was uh, Rob Nyer said he went to the most recent Northwest Saber Convention Saber Chapter meeting, and uh, it looked like uh, a homeless convention. Yeah, well, that's true. Well, maybe uh, we can d- debate women's reproductive rights as so long as we have so many men together. That seems to be the trend, uh, <laughs> at least in our legislature these days. So I'm sure that uh, uh, we as a baseballing group um, can get on the action as well. Yeah, I'll talk to Vince Gennaro and see if we can have a panel on, uh, you know, some kind of uh, female minority issue, uh, and a whole <laughs> bunch of old draggly white guys can uh, come to a consensus. <laughs> Sounds great. All right, uh, well, uh, that, that's going to do it for you, Dave. You, you need to get off the podcast now, and um, I'm sure that you have something that you want to do with your life that's not be on this podcast. But thank you for joining us uh, once again. Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, that's Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. And this is Fangraphs Audio.